Hello and welcome to A Country Podcast, the 2020 re-watching of the quintessential 1980s, early 90s Australian drama, A Country Practice. I'm playwright and journalist Melanie Tate in costume today as it goes as Matron Sloan and with me as always is podcast producer Kim Lester. How are you going? You know, I don't know how poor old Joan Sidney went to work and felt like a woman every day in this outfit. I've got to tell you, it feels very unsexy. Look, since moving to Queensland, I've got to say, I just love a baggy dress. I will take a baggy dress any day. I don't mind how unsexy it is. If it's not touching most of my skin, I'm happy. (laughs) Today is humongo, isn't it? We finally get to share our interview with the wonderful Larray Desmond. She is such a legend and most Australians will know her only really as Shirley Gilroy, knee Dean on A Country Practice, but she had an enormous showbiz career before that. And she put to bed a few ACP mysteries like why was her character killed off in a plane crash when others had long drawn out tragic deaths and we found out that she might actually be the reason that David Bowie was such a big fan of a country practice. I can't wait. So Kim, which episode are we going to be having a look at today? We are looking at Little Voices, which were the first and second episodes of season three. There's a mysterious girl in town who Frank calls Mrs. Kafups, and uh, she's won the town's heart. She goes around selling boxes of oranges. But her strange behaviour has Shirley in a bit of a state of flux, and there's only one thing for it. Shirley must consult her tarot cards to find the answer. I didn't know Shelley was psychic. No, I think that gets lost in later seasons. But at the beginning, she's all into all that sort of hippie stuff. And uh, we meet Ross and Yvonne McLean, who are a couple who are unable to have children and they've been trying for more than a decade to adopt. So let's start with that adoption storyline. So at the beginning of the episode, Yvonne is convinced that she is finally pregnant. You sure? This time, are you sure? Well, sure as I can be. I haven't seen Dr. Elliot yet, but I know. This time, I really know I am. (laughs) And you immediately know that she's not pregnant. She hasn't been to a doctor yet. She's far too happy and excited. And why did she say, why does she say I'm pregnant when she hasn't been to the doctor yet? We just know what's coming. Poor Yvonne. Anyway, of course, she goes to Terence and he informs her that she's not pregnant. And in fact, the symptoms she's experiencing are just a sign that her endometriosis is worsening and she has to have a hysterectomy, which will remove any hope that she can conceive Mm. a child. So, Mel. How did you feel about the, uh, how do you think they handled the adoption storyline from that perspective of the would-be parents? You know, I sat there feeling when I was watching it, just so grateful not to live in the 1980s anymore. <laughs> do, do, you, do you know what I mean? Like it was all so simplistic. And I was thinking how horrible it would have been to be a woman in her 40s in a small country town without children when that was just that character's complete story. Everybody knew that about her. Everybody knew that they couldn't have children and that they were lovely people and probably deserved children. Yes. And probably sat outside the norm of what was going on there. You know, speaking as a 40-year-old woman who doesn't have children in urban 2020 you feel it enough now you know when you're getting to 40 you start to reassess things and you're looking at things and and a friend of mine called me the other day specifically specifically Kim to tell me to have children because she is she's about to turn 46 in a few months time Hmm. and just discovered that you can't get IVF after the age of 46 so she's madly now trying to do that And she actually rang to tell me to get moving because she doesn't want me to be going through this when I'm 45. So you get it constantly in 2020, even when it's not, you're in a country town in Wandon Valley where it becomes your story. Yeah, and I guess it's this thing that people see as it might be the greatest regret of your life if you don't at least try to have children. Yeah, we're always told that. But, I mean, we all live with regret. We all live with things and we all overcome regret and really really frankly there's probably people out there who for whom having children is the greatest regret of their life that they can never ever express yeah yeah 
And there are perfectly there are women who've had perfectly fantastic lives without children, yeah. a la Oprah Winfrey and Gloria Steinem. Like imagine and Melanie Tate and Melanie Tate is having an okay life so far, so far without <laughs> them. But I've still got apparently, um, I think, what was it? You've got six more years. I've got six more. <laughs> what about the drug baby storyline? There's a drug baby storyline. Yes. Let's talk about how they handle this. Yeah, so this is the other key social issue in this episode. I mean, these are two big social issues. So Mrs. Kafups, who's the little girl who was played by a very, very cute Buchanan child. You remember the Buchanans? Oh, yeah. The whole town seems to know who this little girl is. For months she's been coming around selling them boxes of oranges that none of them need, but they all buy them anyway. Because she's so cute and charming. None of them know, though. None of them know her name, for starters, and none of them know that she's living in a squat in the bush with her baby brother and their mother leaves them alone regularly. But this time, little baby Mickey won't stop crying. And so she goes to Shirley for help. And when Frank investigates, they find evidence that the mother has been using heroin. They love heroin on a country practice. They love it. They, they do love heroin on a country practice. You know, you know, though, <laughs> that this is before the AIDS crisis has taken hold because Frank has the the needle in a plastic bag, which he then empties and pulls out the needle to show Terence. And then there's a little sort of dime bag with, you know, a substance in it. And Terence dips his finger in and licks it and says, heroin. What? <laughs> I love how he knows straight away that it's heroin. <laughs> also, I'd like to point out that I think that uh, a country practice's heroin obsession kept me away from heroin basically my entire life. Yeah. So uh, there's there's something to be said for their obsession uh, with with heroin. But I wonder, like, if that harks back to Terence's deep dark past that he can just lick it and know it, or whether he's just a pharmaceutical genius. I just couldn't believe that you would dip your finger in and lick yeah. it, and also that he didn't get high, have a bit of a chill out from it like did he didn't sort of get more more chill Dr. Terrence. Would Frank have let him drive home afterwards after he did that? There's so many questions left unanswered. <laughs> what did you think about how they handled I mean there's so many different aspects to this drug baby storyline. First of all how do you think that they handled the mother? Well because she was really not she was literally an out of focus figure in the distance yeah. was the only time we saw her. Yeah. Just before we do talk about the mother, though, I'm a bit worried that they might not have um, gone by union regulations for that baby. That baby was crying the whole time. That baby was so upset. I know. Just so distressed yes. all the time. So I, I wonder what was going I want, Or I wonder if they just went to casting and said, Let, please find us some a baby that's teething. We just yeah. want a baby that's teething. Get the baby bring the, yeah, that cries the, the most. Yeah. <laughs> bring that baby to us. We we obviously look at this with 2020 eyes always. Mm. So the fact that the mother was faceless and the, the thing that, that we haven't mentioned is that the heroin baby goes on to be fostered yes. by our barren couple. Yes. <laughs> I have avoided the word barren right up to now. <laughs> Our non-deliberately barren couple. Well, this mother of theirs has really neglected them. How could she deny that? She'd have to prove she's right off the drugs. And show she's a capable mother. That's true. And then there's a police record. She'd have a hell of a fight in her hands. So, obviously, I don't like that storyline at all, Kim, Miss uh, Progressive 2020. I think it's terrible. There's no sort of the mother is the, she's the sacrificial lamb to our barren friends having a baby. What do you think of it? I have really, really complicated feelings about it all. So, on the one hand, I think they actually could have handled the mother character worse. I think they could have made her a character with lines and then she would have been this hideous like they would have had no choice well I'm sure they would have had a choice but but the direction it would have gone in she would have been dirty and mean bad makeup yeah and all of the stereotypes of a drug user yes um, who wasn't taking care of her children and they actually I feel like they took a step back from that and so instead they just made her this kind of figure in the distance that nobody interacted with and then all of a sudden she disappeared. And the kids were living in... Squalor, yeah. They were living in a slum. I have really conflicted feelings about... Because in 2020, in the case of parents with drug addiction and child protection, different states have different legislation. But in this case, the mother would have had a couple of years where the focus would have been on addressing... Mm -hmm. The child protection issues. So basically giving her an opportunity to 
get get healthy and be able to take her kids. And and to be honest, in this in a country practice in this, they couldn't find her to be able to do any of those things. But you know, they said she'll be back. There's no question she'll be back. And then you know, it's like she's going to have a hell of a fight on her hands. Oh, which yeah, was yuck. Especially since there's been no process. There's been a guy in Barrigan that hasn't yeah. met them that said, yeah, that's fine. So no process for making them foster parents. And interestingly, 2020 version. So I did the foster care uh, training a few years ago when I lived in Tasmania, and one of the things they're very clear on the fact they don't just want people who are desperate to have children because they can't have their own they ask you so many questions in your test you know you're sort of like are you a good enough human for this test that that couple in the hospital when they're having those things would have set off every red flag and would have been crossed out of foster caring in an instant not to mention the fact that she is days of having had a hysterectomy. She's not supposed to lift anything more than five kilos. <laughs> yeah, they were also about to put her um, into psychiatric care. So, like, there's so, yeah. there's so many so issues. Her well-being, like, she is about to get into a storm of poor mental well-being. But anyway, that aside, so so the way that it is now is that the um, the parents have a couple of years of opportunity to, and this is Queensland, but I think this is the case in mm-hmm. other places as well, to try to sort of clean up their act for one of a better term. Following that, that's when they start to look at long-term orders and start to look at placing children in permanent foster care. Here are my really complicated feelings about mm-hmm. that. On the one hand, yeah, I don't think that children should be taken from their parents. I also think that drug use should never be handled punitively it should always be handled medically um and i think that every everything needs to be done to try to help that person get better be well but children are enduring trauma throughout that whole process oh it's so complicated that's why it's so complicated because drug abuse is selfish and I'm not saying that in an accusatory way. It's just a matter of fact that it's a really selfish illness. It it encourages people to lie, to gaslight, mm. to, you know, I mean, I, I think recovering addicts will tell you this. This is not, I'm yeah. not trying to, yeah. I am approaching this with the greatest of empathy for people who uh, suffer substance abuse. Well, you've, you've been watching a country practice. You've got no choice but been. to <laughs> to feel like that. I also just know how how much trauma is imprinted on the brain from Mm. even before Mm. a child is able to form them as actual memories, that trauma becomes like a part of their neurological sort of development. Well, it actually impedes the the actual growth of their brains. Yeah. 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 So it's complicated. There is no, there's actually no answer to it. I will never come to a conclusion where I say it's black or it's white. It is so grey. That's the thing, though, that we've come to all these years later is that in the foster system, the goal is always to get the kids back with their biological parents unless, you know, things have just gone so, so far that it's impossible. And one of the things that I really took away from the foster training, Kim, was that the teachers were saying it doesn't matter what kind of trauma or relationship that children have with their uh, biological families or their families of birth they still want to go home to their mum. They yeah. all, And it doesn't matter how secure and loving the place is that they go to, yeah. they always want to be back with their parents. And so that's what uh, the foster care, you know, in an ideal world the foster care system does these days is it tries to heal the parents so the kids can go back. Yeah, except that it doesn't because we don't live in an ideal world. Exactly. And, and that's where that language is so jarring with the Maclean's because we're so used to a country practice being this little lefty utopia. So I really wanted them to say, yes, we'd love to take care of these beautiful children until their mother is completely rehabilitated and can look after them. And they didn't do that. And it was very disappointing. Australia was not there. We weren't there yet. No, No, not at all. And I think in a lot of ways, we're still not there. But like I keep saying, so complicated. El Complicado. So, Kim, shall we go back to 1983 now and have a look what was going on then? Sounds good. In a moment, I'll tell you what I've learned about Australia's very complicated history of adoption policy. Oof, I can't wait. (laughs) 
1983 in Australia. How many years ago is that? 27 years ago? Is that correct? Th- try 37. What? <laughs> <laughs> no. Because I just turned is... 40. <laughs> And oh, I was that's born in so 1980. So. That is so depressing, Kim. <laughs> 37 years ago. So you're a middle-aged person if you were – oh, so heroin baby yeah. is a middle-aged person. Yeah. Kim, what was going down in 1983, 37 years ago? So Little Voices Parts 1 and 2 went to air on the 1st and 2nd of February. They were right at the beginning of the season, of season three. And as we've discussed, there were two big social issues in this episode – and Australia has a very, really harrowing, actually, history with adoption policy. Oh, I think, no. Yeah. Interestingly, though, in 1980, it was in a, a strange time of transition from the late 70s to the 80s, which is why Yvonne and Ross had been on waiting lists for intercountry adoptions for like 15 years and they still couldn't adopt a baby. Yeah, that, that seemed really odd though as well that they, like people of their kind of stature in society, they would tick all the boxes. I'm going to get into all of this in a minute. Like the, the whole supply and demand language around adoption in Australia is a bit icky. Gross. Yeah. yeah. Well, because there's always somebody who is less well off who's being disadvantaged. So, you know what, isn't there really? Like this, it's it's usually an economic situation. Yeah. I found this doc. It was put out by a group of people advocating for separated parents, so, so people who had had their babies taken from them. And I found this historic timeline of adoption in Australia, which was so interesting. I think I'll share it in the show notes because it was just like a fascinating from the 1800s to, ah, yeah, goes way back. So the first legislation on adoption in Australia was passed in Western Australia in 1896 and the other states caught up by about the 1920s. And the catalyst for adoption legislation was to reduce mortality rates are among children of unwed mothers. So there's all kinds of social issues at play that would have led to um, higher infant mortality rates, mainly because there was no childcare and there was no yeah, income. And no welfare. And no, no welfare. Yep. Exactly. It was more common for unwed pregnant girls and women to have their babies in a mother and baby home and then stay there with them for a few months. And so they actually learned mothercraft and they you know they were able to breastfeed and take care of those babies for a few months after which time those babies would have been put up for adoption which is devastating uh, yeah there were instances though of uh, mothers who were able to leave with their babies and so maybe they got married maybe they had financial support they, they had more opportunity than others and were these were these mother homes mother child homes run by the church or the government or uh, probably a bit of both I think like a lot of them were run by churches and a lot of them post a big transition in the 1940s became adoption agencies that's when it started to become the norm for babies to be taken immediately at birth and so it was basically birth mothers were stopped from even holding their newborn babies. Was the idea behind that so that nobody would bond and the, the pain would be lessened? Yeah, that's right. But also oh, some of them were being forcibly removed. You know, some some girls would have been giving up their babies for adoption because that was completely their choice. Some would have been shamed into it. Some would have been coerced into it. And some, mm. they were stolen from them. And also adoptions were closed, which meant it was much easier to do that because mm. the records were completely sealed. No one could ever look up who the birth mother oh, of that child gosh. was. Because we all know how good secrets are yes. for all of <laughs> Exactly. And this is also this period when demand well and truly outstrips supply. So regardless of how much the rates of adoption are increasing in Australia at this time, there are still way more people who want to be able to adopt children. And this is the language that was being used in the articles that I was reading as demand was outstripping supply, especially for baby girls. There was a higher demand for baby girls than for baby boys. But you can guess which babies were not in demand and which babies were not being adopted. And that's babies with additional needs, disabilities and non-white babies. So babies of mixed race. It's pretty hideous. Um, adoption rates peaked. I mean, I say all of that, but then I also, obviously, obviously there are people who grew up as adoptees in very, very loving homes. And, of course, yeah. You know, like it doesn't, I in no way want to discount anybody's family. So adoption rates peaked at about 10,000 
in Australia, that's Australia wide in around 1971-1972 but then that's when a couple of things happened in the 1970s and that completely changed the adoption landscape can i guess yes abortion's one of them is it it would have been yeah i i haven't included that but yes it would have been and just something to do with Gough Whitlam. Yes. Abortion and Gough Whitlam. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> <laughs> yes, abortion would have been. Well, not as many babies either. Not as many if babies. women are suddenly able to have abortions. Mm-hmm. And in 1973, the Whitlam government introduced the Supporting Mothers Benefit, which meant that single mothers had an income. So if you think about it, there are three catalysts for adoption. Illegitimacy, which is the shaming of the women. Mm-hmm. Infertility, which is what increase the demand and impoverishment. And so the Whitlam government was able to greatly reduce that instance of impoverishment. I swear to God, Kim, if I do make a decision in the next five years to have a baby and, and um, you know, before my 46th birthday and it's a boy, I'm going to have to call that boy Goff. <laughs> Don't you think? Like Goff just did so many great things. Anyway, mm. back to let's go back to adoption. Attitudes were also shifting And so there was not the same degree of shaming and shunning of unwed mothers as there was in the 40s and 50s when babies were being forcibly removed. But the other big thing that happened, and this is what reduced or put an end to that forcible removal, is that adoptions having always been closed, making it impossible for birth parents to find their child and vice versa, between the 70s, 80s, right up to the 90s, the practice and legislation shifted to open adoptions, which meant that the rights of the birth parents also improved because they had to have written consent from often both parents, depending on the circumstances, to put that baby up for adoption. So that meant just that the whole adoption landscape changed. Just finally, and I feel like this whole conversation needs to have a part two because I haven't even begun to touch on intercountry adoption, which is where the landscape Mm. shifted to. But the other big social change that happened in the 1970s, and this is how intercountry adoption really began, was Operation Baby Lift, which was following the Vietnam uh, War. Yep. Yeah, in 1975, right after the end of the Vietnam War, there was this mass evacuation of orphaned South Vietnamese children, and they were taken to countries like Australia and the US and other countries, which meant that attitudes began to shift around things like race and the age of the children being adopted. And so people who wanted babies and could no longer access babies from the uh, you know previous supply <laughs> were considering babies who didn't look like them, babies who were older. That's so interesting. Yeah. And you know what? I'm, I'm betting in the 1,038 episodes or whatever it is, we'll have some more adoption storylines oh, where we, sure. can, we can take that. Kim, that was so interesting. I swear to God you could do a PhD on a country practice's influence from the Whitlam government and, you know, how we've discussed before yeah. that it was all through those labour years. Like, yeah. it's just so interesting, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. So, Mel, I recognised a couple of the guests in this episode. I can't wait to hear who you've researched. Fantastic, Kim. Hey, Kim. Yes, Mel? Holidays, they're looking very, very, very different this year. Oh, they sure are. We're all pretty landlocked. Has it got you thinking about all the places you wish you'd gone before this? You mean like Asia, Europe, Antarctica? Yeah, that's lots of places. Well, guess what? I've got a great idea for a place to visit with an actual real country practice if you need one. Hopefully you won't need one on your holidays. What if I told you there was a doctor like Terence? Is there? I don't know. But what I do know about Australia's cutest country town that isn't Wandon Valley is that it has three waterfalls, a world-famous pie shop and... The big potato. Are you talking about Robertson in New South Wales? (laughs) Yes, I am, Kim. Easy to visit if you're in New South Wales. One for your list when the borders open eventually. Not only is it my hometown, but it's famous for even more than that. More than three waterfalls, a big potato and Melanie Tate's birthplace? (laughs) Yes. Funnily enough, more exciting things have happened there than that. It was also where the movie Babe was filmed about the little pig. 
Kim Robertson, it's two hours drive from Sydney. It's a vomit-inducing hour up the Macquarie Pass from Wollongong and it's 90 minutes from Canberra. Can you buy a potato lunch at the Big Potato? Kim, you cannot, but you can buy a Big Potato mug, a Big Potato t-shirt, a Big Potato beer cooler, a Big Potato light key ring, of which I have one, all the merch you like. And if you mention the code A Country Podcast, you can get 10% off this said Big Potato merch. What a deal. What a holiday. <laughs> You're telling me, Kim. You're telling me. Shouldn't you give a disclaimer? Well, yes, I I probably should. Uh, I'd like to disclaim, or do I claim, that I am the Big Potato heiress, so we'll directly benefit from your visit to Robertson and your purchasing of Big Potato merch. A country podcast as your code, 10% off Big Potato merch. This week, I'm going to look at one of the most significant showbiz families of the 80s and 90s, maybe more significant than the Minogues, definitely more significant than the Blakeney twins, (laughs) and that's the Buchanans. But before we talk about the Buchanans, I just want to point out another person that interestingly has their first appearance on a country practice, and that's Maureen Edwards. She plays Mrs. McLean, our friend who can't have a baby and has the hysterectomy, etc. She goes on to be the final matron of a country practice many, many years later, and the person that I hope that Dr. Terence is living with somewhere in Wandon Valley as his fourth wife or third wife? Third wife. Alex's second wife, yeah, third wife was matron number three. So she has her first appearance here as – she's very beautiful, isn't she? She's she's gorgeous. Kiwi actor, amazing. But let's get to the Buchanans, Miles, Simone and Beth. And Beth, who at 11 years old is making her second appearance on a country practice. Oh, really? (laughs) As the second character she'd play, uh, which is Mrs. Kafoops or Janice, our young daughter of the drug addict. Now, the Buchanans, Kim, when we were growing up, were in pretty much everything. From Miles and Simone's debut in a 1978 movie called The Good Thing Going, where they played the children of divorcing parents, which apparently they were going through at the time. So they were able to show their fantastic acting prowess. Now, the family originally came from Sydney with a muso dad and a teacher mum, which tends to be a really good combo for creative kids. You know, a lot of actors you meet along the way, I reckon maybe – Four out of five actors have teacher parents. Mm. I know that's really – I'd love to know what it is about teacher parents that means people can be creative and able to go into the world and be creative. But here's how Simone told Cinema Australia that the family got started in the biz, these three gorgeous little kids. She said, it's weird because I don't even know. Miles and I started to do something during the school holidays. We were always very creative kids at home and my mum was going through her divorce at the time. So she enrolled us in this school to take our minds off all that and to get our creative creative juices flowing. We just fell in love with it. And I've just got this great quote from Beth. She told Star Magazine reporter David Nichols, I've done a country practice five times as five different people. I played the part of a Down syndrome child years and years ago. And then I was... (laughs) I know, oopsie daisy. And then I was the daughter of a heroin addict who leaves me and my brother alone. Then I played a minor's granddaughter. Then I was a Californian girl and that was all over the space of two years. (laughs) Quite recently I was a pregnant girl who had a a baby in the barn. So we've got lots of things to look forward to discovering about Beth's visits to a Wandon Valley. Now, as with all Australian TV nostalgia, if you look hard enough through your Google search on about page eight, you'll eventually come to a website that a fan has done. (laughs) And a lot of this info comes from one of those fan sites, you know, with a black background and lots of different fonts. It's called buchanansiblings.webs.com. You can get all sorts of things about the Buchanans there. Now, Beth went on to appear in Blue Healers for a few years, as well as having recurring roles on Home and Away, Hey Dad and Neighbours. As an adult, she appeared to have done most of her acting work in the theatre with her partner, the playwright Raimondo Cortese. And apparently through the last few years, uh, Beth Buchanan went back to uni to study social work. So oh. go Beth. I wonder if it was the heroin storyline that drove that Or decision. maybe the baby in the barn. Yeah. Or maybe it was um, appropriating somebody <laughs> with Down syndrome. Who, yep. Who knows? 
<laughs> Let's go to Miles Buchanan now, who's super interesting. He was perhaps the most precociously talented of the three Buchanan kids. He's got a really complex showbiz history, Kim. He won his first Logie at the age of 10. Wow. For his debut in this The Good Thing Going that he did with Simone. And then he worked steadily in TV and theatre from then on and in really big jobs. By the by, he only appeared once in a guest on a country practice, just the once, which we need to investigate why because that's just weird. Yeah, maybe he was too busy. Yeah, I think he was because he was in everything from Mm. GP to Sons and Daughters, but he really excelled on stage, having big, big roles. For example, in Adrian Mole, the musical, he played Adrian at the Athenaeum Theatre in in Melbourne. So really big, big roles. His career really took a turn when, while doing a Sydney Theatre Company show in his early 20s at the Opera House, he vanished and he emerged sometime later beaten up and was subsequently taken to a psychiatric hospital, which began his long fight with mental illness and drug and alcohol recovery. Now, he spent much of his 20s in the care of their mother trying to battle these things. Mm. And in fact, Joe Buchanan, the mother, wrote a book about that experience of caring for a child with mental illness and drug and alcohol problems called Wings of Madness. Now, on this Buchanan Sibs website, there's an interesting story about how he'd had, Miles had had a turnaround in his late 20s or early 30s and he had to have a go at getting things back on track and he went back to uni to do music and philosophy. Now let's go to Simone, who's probably the best known of the Buchanans. Was she always Simone or because I remember her being Simone. I remember her being Simone, me too. <laughs> and I, have you noticed how I've gone between calling her Simone <laughs> and Simone? And the reason is because I always called her Simone as well, but in every TV interview she's Simone. Okay. Well, she's probably Simone. She's probably always been yeah. Simone. But yeah, and it's just Australians. Australia. Yeah. Um, let's go to Simone slash Simone now. Um, probably she's the best known of the Buchanans and for a bunch of really excellent reasons. She's best known for her role on the once much loved but now much tainted Hey Dad. She played Debbie Kelly, which we'll get to in a second. Mm-hmm. First though, Kim, have a listen to some of the incredible credits she had as a child and teen actress. Her second appearance in a film ever was in My Brilliant Career. Mm. And she's memorable in it, yeah. you know, like she's a she's a really important part of it. She also had a seminal role in a film that really should occupy every best of classic Australian film list and doesn't, and I think that's because we're ultimately a patriarchal society, um, is the film Shame, the feminist masterpiece Shame oh. with Deborah Lee Finesse. Have you ever seen that no. film? Oh, it's incredible. It's pretty much like the wake in fright, but for women. It's about a hard-ass lawyer that goes to a town after a young woman has been raped and what goes down after that. And Simone plays the young woman. It is an absolutely incredible film. Anyway, outside those two big films, Simone was in pretty much every TV show there was. She was in Flying Doctors, A Country Practice, twice. Um, Sons and Daughters, GP, Pacific Drive, All Saints, Blue Healers, Neighbours, which she's still on and she directs every now and again. Now, Simone copped a bunch of flack a few years back when she spoke out after the accusations of sexual misconduct against uh, Hey Dad star Robert Hughes. Buchanan told the media that she'd been aware of his behaviour and that she'd gone to the boss of the show to report it and he'd basically told her to shut up and keep working. Mm. The really bad thing is it continues to have repercussions because Simone and her co-stars Sarah Monaghan, Ben Oxenbold, Christopher Truswell, Julie McGregor, they all spoke out to the media before it went to court. And they were given Mm. a lot of flack for their bravery and they were ultimately vindicated as other victims of Robert Hughes came out and he was jailed. Mm. They all did an interview in 2014 about how they'd had no doubt that their acting careers had been stalled because of their speaking out, which is just so sad. You know, and you think of somebody like Simone Buchanan who's had this amazing career that kind of like compared to people probably around her age like Nicole Kidman, etc., She's, really, she's flown under the radar, stayed in Australia, but worked really, really solidly. And she said that she had known for sure that she didn't get roles because people thought she was trouble because she'd spoken out. This was such a complicated case as well within the Australian industry because Robert Hughes was married to Robin Gardner, who was a powerful agent in Australia, who pretty much represented everybody. Kate Blanchett was kind of her biggest client. Mm. And there's always a lot in the stories about how powerful Robin Gardner was. But the fact of the matter is Robin Gardner was very powerful, but she was also beloved. People mm. loved her 
absolutely loved her. So it was very hard for people to speak out against Hughes because they're yeah. speaking out against Robin Gardner. At one stage, Ben Oxenbold, who was in Hey Dad, his agent was Robin Gardner. You know, mm. so what do you what do yeah. you do? You know, like yeah. it just uh, it just was so seemed so awful. The other thing that really struck me as sad with um, Simone when she was talking about having spoken up is she also got all of them got flack about going to the media first and not going to the police. Mm. But the fact of the matter is, like, as we were all growing up, when things like that happened, you didn't think that you could go yeah. to the police. That was all private stuff, wasn't it? Yeah. It was all kind yeah. of like when when somebody was being bashed by their wife down the street, for example, that was a family matter. It wasn't mm. a police matter. So I can see how Simone wouldn't think to go to the police in 1990 whatever it was when yeah when her boss told her just leave it you know we'll yeah. just make sure that that he's he doesn't have any scenes alone that he's never alone with her that was the the that's what they put into practice on set like just yeah. disgraceful what a complicated episode complicated. Kim. <laughs> complicated complicated <laughs> all right well i think it's time for the moment we've all been waiting for that's time for oh. the fabulous Ms. Larray Desmond. How exciting is this? Now, Larray is 91. She just had her 91st birthday. And I think there must have been something in that water at Wandon Valley because the longevity, but also, Kim, the like the smarts and wit. Like I would mm. I would imagine that by the time I'm 92, I'll be pretty foggy of brain. But even like Joyce Jacobs, didn't she? She died in her 90s. Uh, your, you know, the inspiration for your costume today, Matron Sloan. Joan Sidney is still alive, and I think she's in her nineties. Brian Wenzel is still alive. Yeah, he's in nineties. Nineties. Just yeah. What what were they drinking? It was the food by the Greek caterer. I'm sure of it. You know how everybody talks about this amazing Ruler. caterer. Yeah, must have been rulers. Must have rulers been food. rulers' food. So Kim Lorray, <laughs> there's a moment in this interview where we asked her why she wanted Shirley to be killed off screen, and the answer was pretty simple. But her friend Gail reminded her afterwards of the real reason. So we're going to fill you in afterwards. Yes, can't wait. you find the name Lorraine Desmond? Where does that come from? Well, my dad's first name was Desmond, and I love my dad. And there was, when I was in hairdressing, there was a girl called Lorraine Ingram. And I said, do you mind if I borrow your name for a while? Well, I never gave it back. <laughs> you know, you spent such a long time in your career as a, as a singer. Were you acting as well or is singing your first love? It's cabaret. I love doing cabaret. I never wanted to be an actress. What made you decide to give a country practice a go then? Well, James Davenant asked me. I didn't think it would go off that bloody long. <laughs> it went on forever. I was in it for nine years. It certainly did. And do you have a handful of songs that you like to go back to in your cabaret shows, the ones, the song... The songs that you keep returning to? Oh, not necessarily any particular one. I like to change the lyrics to songs. I even wrote the lyrics to the country practice theme, which James Davin said was too poetic. Do you remember them? Yeah. There is a place inside your mind. There is a place that your heart can find. Da-la-la-la, inside your mind. There's a place. That's beautiful, though. I can hear that. I can really hear it. Did you actually know James when he approached you about the show? No. So it was just your reputation in the industry? I don't know why he asked me. Stupid. <laughs> Nonsense, because I think that especially Mel and I have both been watching those early years of Shirley Dean and I, I wonder how much of you is in there because she's she seems very fun and a little bit wicked, but also very kind. Is that is that a fair assessment of Shirley Dean? I think there's quite a lot of me there, you know. I think because uh, James had seen me in uh, oh he'd seen me in Arcade, which was a terrible show, so he asked me if I'd do it. Well, I didn't really want to, but you know the money was attractive. So I thought, oh, it'll only be for a few weeks. Nine years later, 
a few weeks. Who were the other characters that you connected with the most or the other actors that you had the closest relationships with? Well, I love Joe, Josephine Mitchell, you know, and we're still good friends today, you know, very close friends. Oh, and Penny Cook I adored. That was the saddest thing when she went. It was hard for all of us. Oh, no doubt. And you two had a beautiful dynamic as mother and daughter as well. I really enjoy your watching your relationship on screen. Oh, we were very close friends. Uh, who else did I like? Oh, I love Joyce Jacobs. As a matter of fact, when she died, her family asked me to, to, to speak at a funeral. And what were the sorts of stories that you did tell about her at her funeral? Well, she was a bloody good actress for a start. Mm. And she was, she she was so patient, you know. Sometimes if they sent by mistake, and she she was sent to location, she'd get there hours before she was supposed to be there. And then they say, oh, "I'm sorry, we forgot to tell you, you're not called today." And she'd say, "Well, can I just have a coffee before I drive back?" I would have gone nuts. No, she was just the nicest, sweetest lady. And I was so honoured that her family asked for me to speak at a funeral. Your character became everyone's mum on the show and Shirley took in Joe and then Luke, these orphaned kids. Was it kind of like that on set as well with the younger ones? Did you become the mum on set to them? I became a buddy, became a pal, and if they wanted to discuss things, they'd come and discuss with me, knowing it wouldn't go any further. Yeah, I remember when, I think, didn't you do Matt Day? I remember when he came in, they, he came down from Melbourne and he had his cat with him. And I thought, oh, anyone who likes animals has got to be all right. <laughs> oh, I loved him. He was a gorgeous kid. So I read somewhere, Larray, that when the time came for you to leave, that you didn't want a long, drawn-out uh, storyline like Molly's death. Oh, no. Can you tell us about that, why you didn't want that? Well, I didn't want all that moroseness. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I had another gig to go to because I went straight into high society mm-hmm. and uh, I just wanted to get out of there and get on with the next gig, you know. I mean, nine years in one place is a long time. And were you happy with the way that Shirley ended up exiting with the plane crash? It was my idea. Oh, how did, how did you pitch it to them? Uh, well, James said he was going to give me a long, drawn-out death, you know, and I said, I said, well, in that case, I'm going now. And he said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to go down the plane and, and not be seen, you know. I said, I can't see the, all this morose crap. No, not for me. Does that mean that you weren't aware of the way that the public perceived the end of Shirley or anything because you were straight on to the new, the next thing in the next project? No, I have no idea. <laughs> Do they care? I think they care. <laughs> I think they care a lot. Lorraine, we'll, we'll let you get going soon, but I guess we'll wrap up by asking you, what do you think the the legacy of a country practice is for you know, the Australian industry and also Australian culture? Oh, well, I, I said, it's, it was in 37 countries, I believe. We didn't get paid for that, but it was. And uh, a country practice with David Bowie's favourite show. And I'd, I'd met him in, uh, in Bristol because uh, it was when the start of his career when he, his first big record and I was working up in the cabaret room to practically nobody, and he wanted to take me out. And I said, uh, I knew he was taking marijuana, and I, I, I've never taken drugs of any kind. I don't like them. So I didn't go out with him because of that. Pity. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering, do you regret that decision, knowing where it all ended up for him? I know. I know. <laughs> but maybe that explains why it was one of his favourite shows, because he remembers you and he saw you on there. I will. I think so because we we knew one another from working the same place. That's the official. That's officially why it was his favourite show. We know it now. 
Well, Lorraine, it has been so wonderful chatting with you today. Thank you so much for your time. I just, you look so yeah. beautiful. Like you've hardly changed a day. My God. What do you do? Do you not drink? I know you're vegetarian or something. What's the secret? Well, I'm a vegetarian. I've been a vegetarian since birth. Really? Really? How did that come about? My mother's religion. What was your mother's religion? Christian Israelite. Ah, right. Right. It's just uh, uh, whatever you're doing, I think that Kim and I need to do because <laughs> you look so well and yeah. sound so well. And like, so thank you so much. Hmm. It's no wonder she was so loved on set. Yeah, and so it? glamorous. And Kim, can I tell you something really cool? Hmm. is that I have a friend whose parent worked on a country practice for hmm. years and years and years mm-hmm. and whenever he was sick from school he would go oh, on yeah. set and so Lorray taught him all these things. She taught him how to play the keyboard and she yeah. also taught him how to play backgammon and he yeah. taught me how to play backgammon so I've basically learned how to play backgammon from Shirley. Go you. So, you know, do you want me to teach you how to play backgammon and then you've... Yes. yes. And then Shirley we, will have taught me how to play backgammon too. We keep Excellent. it going. <laughs> so, yeah, as we said, her reason for being killed off off screen. So when Molly died, it was a long, drawn-out ratings juggernaut. When Donna died, it was shocking. Short and sharp. Larray did not want that. She didn't want to have an on-screen death. And her reason, although she kind of said to us, well, I just, you know, didn't want to. I was ready to leave. I had a role in high society. Gail explained to us that the actual reason that she wanted that was because she used to visit children in hospital around that time. And she had, because she was kind of, I know she didn't like to be known as, you know, everyone's mum, but she was this kind of mate to the young people around her she didn't want them to be traumatized by the idea of seeing Shirley dead on the screen which would have been really upsetting for kids in hospital bless her she's so lovely and she's so glamorous Kim how do we I want to be that glamorous now at 40 (laughs) I'm definitely not that glamorous now neither she's fab which brings us when we're talking to our own fashion to fashions of the field for today all right I actually, I don't, I still don't think I've decided. Mm-hmm. I still am stuck because there were some great hats in this episode. Yep. Mrs. Kafoops wore a fantastic little straw hat, which I thought was adorable. Frank's terry toweling bucket hat with the sides and the back sticking up. I got to tell you was... something about Frank. <laughs> yes. Frank's really starting to grow on me. I'm fighting it, <laughs> but he is growing on me. I'm kind of starting to love him a bit. Frank really reminds me of an older man that I know who is just kind of the 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 guy that everyone else around him sort of wants to go tune out oh. yeah and tune <laughs> yes, out yeah. wants to tune out he tries a bit too hard with little kids like he oh. he just wants to be loved by little kids in a, in a completely you know like acceptable yeah not, not pedophilic way way mm. no you know like there's a bit where frank in this episode sees mrs kafoops walking down the street and so he gets out of the car and he bounds over yeah. to her and he's like hello mrs kafoops oh. and she's just like leave me alone <laughs> <laughs> But he is, he's he's so well-meaning. So well-meaning. So have you decided on what yours is going to be? I think I'm going to go with Molly in the opening few scenes of Molly. She is wearing a very, very bright yellow with some red and purple, Mm -hmm. I think, patches, blouse with quite big shoulders and some blue overalls. And the best thing about it is it matches the patchwork baby mat that Chloe has, that (laughs) Chloe's lying on and she's carrying around. (laughs) So I loved it. (laughs) She's so great. She's so great. Well, I'm going to go for the second runner up is Dr. Terrence's hair, of course. Always. I am into Dr. Terence's painting jumper. He's doing some <laughs> painting in this and he's got this kind of old scratchy woolen grey jumper that I love that I think would smell really nice. And <laughs> <laughs> Can I, while we're talking about the painting clothes, does Simon, do you think Simon is modelling his comedy on the goodies? <laughs> he might be. That's, he's so he's, Tim Brooke Taylor. He really isn't he? is. He's delightful. Yes. I'm going to give the winner, though, of the entire Fashions of the Field to a teal scarf that Shirley wears in it that is sort of electric teal. And it, yes. she wears it on her head and it jumps off the screen. And that's, that's what's one mine. of my favorite colors. Me too. Oh, so wonderful. And she looks terrific. So that's mine for today, Kim. Thank you so much. 
So we'll put all of those photos on our Facebook page, which is A Country Podcast. We're both on Twitter. I'm at Melanie Tate. I'd love you to follow me there where I share lots of cute photos of Dr. Terrence and the like. (laughs) And I'm at Kim Lester. And can we also just say thank you so much for all of the amazingly kind reviews that you've posted on Apple Podcasts. They're so great. Like Alex, the history buff, said, I'm not even all the way through the first episode and I love it, five stars. And Bloom <laughs> AU said, what a treat to find a community of ACP lovers. I just want to read out that uh, Bloom thinks that the hosts are so articulate, professional and funny. I'd agree with that, Kim. Oh. I'd like to. Uh, for sure. And five stars. So please do, if you've got time, please rate and review us. It helps other people find us. It helps us build this little community of ACP nerds. So next time we will talk to Wandon Valley's reluctant serial killer. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Yes. Judith Cahoon, who wrote the most episodes of A Country Practice and became the go-to writer for the most tragic and iconic deaths. Molly's, of course but also not one, but two, oh gosh, of poor Dr. Terence's children. Yes, and so we will look at the four-part series run of the Sophie episodes from season eight. And I think that might have been peak ACP taking on social issues of the day. It's got heroin, it's got HIV AIDS, basically it's got, got everything. It's got an intergenerational step family. <laughs> does too. <laughs> Alex needs to grow up just between the two of us. (laughs) Thanks again to our composer, Nate Edmondson, ripping on Mike Pajanik's original theme. And a huge, huge thank you this week to Cathy Campbell, who was, she was a publicist on A Country Practice, and she got in touch with us when we launched the show to introduce us to LeRae. I just think never in a million years would I have thought we'd be interviewing Lorraine Desmond. I didn't think we would either. It was amazing. So thank you, Kathy. Kim, it's been real. See you next time with more chat about complicated things. Bye. When I was about seven, I moved to Sydney and I wanted to be on TV. I loved watching a country practice and that was like the show. That was sort of the show you wanted to be on. And my mum said that I had to work out how to do it myself. So I joined the Linda Keane Talent School. I was an extra on a show called Runaway Island. Part of the show was actually filmed at Molly and Brendan's farm. And then my mum said that she got a call to say that I'd been asked to be an extra on a show. And she said, it's one of those shows that's on every week. So I was like, yes, this is it, a country practice. But no, I was girl on a swing in Sons and Daughters. And then my other thing that got me almost close, I was asked to be an extra in a movie. It was um, Melvin, son of Alvin. The main actor in that was a guy called Jerry Sant, who was also in a country practice. So I was always close, but never got there. (laughs) 